God's parts. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this privilege of gathering together as family this morning. Thank you so much for truth that sets us free, Father. Ah, what a privilege it is to be here, to fellowship in your son's good name, to break bread, the very bread of life, Father, the thing that sustains us in time, the thing that invigorates us and Oh, it just gives us so much to live for, Father. We're so grateful for this gift called this morning. We do pray for those in the congregation that can't be with us here this morning. Um, due to a variety of reasons, Father, we do pray that you return them to the fold in your good timing, of course. We pray also for those still in the world that are lost, without hope, that they be humbled and receive saving faith before it's too late. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a morning like this a time to rejoice for all of us. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask us in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right, part 36 of Proverbs 17. Last week, the Spirit gave us a couple of uh, special messages titled Love, Hate, and Grace. And you say, wow, that's incredible. And if you think about it, it's kind of like he said, there's one pole, there's the other, and this is how you cross the chasm. Love, hate, and grace, right? And so that was kind of the construct of those two special messages and they are must-hear messages. They're not ones that you really want to say, oh, I'll just catch up, because they were specials. And that was it. They're, they have this moment in time meant for this congregation. He gives them to us so that you all receive grace uh, in his timing. And so they're must-hear messages. So if you missed either of them, make sure you catch up for your own soul's peace. Uh, also, don't forget to read the blog up here on the board, which is very much related to those messages. What is holy hatred? Very important blog. You've you got to understand that holy hatred is not an emotional thing. It's not like, you know, when a, when a human says, oh, I hate that thing or I hate that person. Uh, and it's emotional and you want to throttle someone or something like that. It's not like that. It's a holy God with a problem with unholiness. That's what holy hatred is. Does that precipitate wrath? You bet. It's what you expect from God, from a holy God. So read that as well. It's very complimentary. Um, with that said, uh, we need to do a quick review of this past week's messages, um, if for nothing else, just to regain our footing. And then we can get back to our primary course of study, which is Proverbs 17. On Thursday, we began with a friendly reminder. Go to Romans 12, verse 9. Romans 12, verse 9. Nice, friendly reminder. I'm going to give you a little bit more color on this this morning. Uh, it should make a lot more sense. But it also forms, I like to use the word connective tissue. I hope you understand what I mean by that. It connects us personally to these messages as of late. Romans 12, 9. <clears throat> Let love be genuine. Abhor, that's a very strong Greek word, abhor what is evil, 
Hold fast to what is good. Up here on the board, abhor, apostogeo in the Greek. Apo means from or away from, stogeo means detest or abhor. It means to shrink from or away from, if you would, with abhorrence, to detest something. That's abhor. Abhor what is evil. Like, ooh, like that. That's kind of visual. So you can visualize this uh, when, you, when you run into something that's truly repulsive. That would be the visual, right? Like you either see or, or the, the example I have here, not to be gross on a Sunday morning. Not that that's ever stopped me. But this would be like what you do. You know when you come across, or like say you're on a walk, or you're in a, I don't know, a convertible or something, or you're in a car and the AC's blowing, and you run upon like a rotting carcass? I mean a fresh one, you know what I'm getting at? One that's not just, you know, not boned yet, but that, ugh, that, that smell of death, right? Um, and it hits you like a ton of bricks. Um, I mean, isn't your first, your first reaction is go like this, oh, right? It's like, oh, gosh, that's horrible. It's repugnant. To use language that's consistent with the Bible to amplify the, the point on the board, it's offensive. It's, oh, that's just awful. It's offensive. It's so awful. And you just kind of, mm, right? That's what this word means. It's that. It's not like, oh, that's kind of a little unpleasant. No, it's, oh, that. Oof, I'm just going to turn my head away from that thing. That's what abhor means. That's the strength of uh, that word in the Greek. Again, look at verse 9. <clears throat> so he says, let love be genuine. We're going to get back to that. Abhor, I just gave you the original Greek on that. Very powerful. Abhor what is evil. Woo, right? But then on the flip side, it says, hold fast to what is good. Hold fast to what is good. Up here on the board, that's from kalao in the original. It means to glue or weld together. To weld together, to cleave, to adhere to of friendly intercourses. In, in other words, just boom, right? Hold fast, cleave to what is good. So on one hand, you have, oh, right? On the other hand, you have not just, oh, that's nice, but grab it, cleave to it. And if you, if you know anything about welding, welding is actually done at the molecular level, so it's almost like you, you're this way. Some people would say that welding, and if you do a really good weld, it's stronger than the original. But anyways, Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. So what Paul has set up here is a profound contrast, not by accident, not a very long uh, verse even, is it? It's just boom, boom, boom. Right? Boom, boom, boom. He says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. It's just boom, almost staccato, right? Doom, doom, doom. Not a whole lot of fanciness there. So Paul has set up a profound contrast between something that is so offensive that we turn away from it and something so attractive that we cling to it with all we've got. So we have this massive contrast between these two words, these two concepts. So that's the difference between a godly reaction to evil and a godly reaction to good. Um, but there's even a little more to be said here. The opening sentence says what? 
It says, let love be genuine. And as we've learned in previous uh, messages on this particular verse, it means without hypocrisy. It doesn't just mean genuine. It means without hypocrisy. Right? Not untainted, if you would. Pure. Let it be genuine. Without hypocrisy. In other words, for something to be genuine, it cannot be one part genuine and another part disingenuine or disingenuous, right? That, that type of a, it can't be one part genuine, one part not for it to actually be genuine. So in the Bible, we would say, you know, it can't be one part light and one part darkness. Um, light doesn't really work that way. When light comes into darkness without any impediments, right? When light comes into darkness, it just does its thing. Is that fair? It just lights up. It destroys darkness. When light comes in, it just destroys darkness because light is pure. So if something is genuine without hypocrisy, then it is pure. And in this, the context of this uh, verse, pure means pure, right? Uh, genuine means genuine. So here's an analogy for you. If a sidewalk vendor says, a necklace is pure gold, but he's really selling 14 karat gold instead of 24 karat gold. He's lying, and the value of that necklace isn't what he says it is. The value of the necklace isn't what he says it is, even if you can't tell the difference. I mean, who, unless you're a jeweler, I'm not even sure they can do it with the naked eye. I don't I think they weigh it and such. Um, the old days, of, right? Nobody? Could you tell? I mean, I don't know. If someone says, oh, that's 14 karat gold, that's 24 karat gold, I, don't, I wouldn't be able to tell, I'm assuming. Um, apparently, I haven't bought a lot of gold. All right? But you can't tell. It doesn't matter if you can tell the difference or not. It's not genuine, pure gold if it's not 24 karat. So therefore, it's what we would call, for this purpose, a counterfeit, especially if he's selling it as pure um, and it's not. Then he's a, count, a counterfeit. If that gold were a person, we would call it a hypocrite. That's the point. If that gold were a person, we would call it a hypocrite. So that's why the Bible uses assayers' terminology, right? An assayer is just someone who tests metals for purity. Um, the Bible uses this assayer te uh, terminology um, in a multitude of ways regarding the purity of our faith, our love, etc., it doesn't matter if no one around us can tell if we're, you know, if we secretly harbor uh, an affinity for some kind of evil in us. In other words, maybe we're the 14 karat gold version and nobody can tell the difference, right? And you say, well, nobody can tell. It doesn't really matter because everybody around me, nobody can tell. But God's assaying abilities are perfect. So he knows a hypocrite when he sees one. And as the Spirit's been teaching us, he just wants us to confess the same thing. He, see, you stop being a hypocrite when you confess. You might say, you know, if you're saying, I'm 24 karat gold, baby, and you're really 14, right? You're a hypocrite. But if you say, you know what? I know that 24 karat gold is pure, but I'm only 14. You're no longer a hypocrite. You're just being honest. You're being humble. And God can work with that. He says, good, because there's that other 10K. I don't even know if it works like that, but 
right? There's that other 10-carat measurement thingy for purity that you're missing. So I can work with that, right? But if you play this game, oh, no, I'm 24-carat. How great is your darkness when you think you're in the light type thing? So there's that whole thing about confession. God just wants you to say the same thing as he says, starting with yourself. Romans 12, 9 again, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. So therefore, our love ought to be genuine before God. But why this statement in Holy Scripture? I mean, why does that statement even exist? Well, to sanctify you, of course. To encourage you to say, oh, yeah, no. Turn away from evil and cling to what is good. And in, in my personal experience, the more I grow up in the faith, the more the chasm between those two things exist. I'm, now I really, really hate evil. And I really, really want to cling to what's good. And that's just a function, I think, of growing up in the faith. So again, why Romans 12, 9 out of the gate? Well, as a reminder that he's trying to sanctify you. Practically illustrated, if you turn away from evil and cling to what is good, as we are instructed, you are blessed. If you secretly harbor affinities for evil and refuse to give them up, then you are cursed by your own stubbornness. That's where the cursing comes in. Speaking of things to abhor, let's get back to our main thought from this past week's messages, which was sin. If there's one thing we're going to abhor in life, it's sin itself, right? Sin is the most repulsive thing we know. Up here on the board, I gave you Charles Spurgeon on Thursday. I'll read it again. I had rather pass through seven years of the most wearisome pain and the most languishing sickness then I would ever again pass through the terrible discovery of the evil of sin. That's how, what an abhorrence sin was to him when he realized the effects, the nature of sin itself. He did this, oh, like I would rather do seven years of pain in, in sickness than have to go through that realization again because that was awful. And that is obviously reflective of what we just read in Romans 12.9. You would expect that. On Thursday, we read Genesis 3.14-19 to get a refresher course on the curse that was handed out at the fall in the garden. We noted that even the rest of creation, in other words, sin itself just, you know, it was like an explosion. It just affected not just man, but the rest of creation. Up here in the board, Genesis 3.17 then to Adam, the Lord God said, Because you have listened attentively to the voice of your wife and have eaten fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. The ground is now under a curse because of you. So even the rest of creation, even you know, planet Earth is cursed because of the fall. In sorrow and toil you shall eat uh, the fruit of it all the days of your life. We also noted Paul referring back to this in Romans 8 up here on the board. This is all review, so I'm going quickly. Romans 8, 19 to 20 and verse 22. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And so just a blanket statement. We're not going to get into the deep theology of this. Just think of it. Sin just ruined everything. You know, like when a little kid just gets so frustrated. You know, I just ruined everything. Right? It's not that cute, but sin just ruined everything. It's just, ah, you know. So from God's perspective, the creator of all things good, including the originally untainted heavens and earth, sin has effectively ruined the purity of his creation. It's, it's a disease, right? It's kind of like it was a perfect body of work. You know, he rested on the seventh day. He's like, yeah, this makes me happy. Now I'm happy. And then here comes sin like, like, an, like a disease. And it just infected that beautiful thing. And that's what sin has done. It's ruined the purity of his original creation. So this has angered him beyond comprehension. And rightly so. I think about it. You're the holy, sovereign God of the universe. You create something beautiful and perfect. Um, and then this thing comes in from the side. And, ooh, where did that come from? That's what sin did. Uh, and so when you're holy, perfectly so, that tainting, that pollution, that corruption of purity really, really angers him, angers the Holy One. So, I mean, think about this. Even in our own little worlds, we could probably think of it. How would you like it if you built a home for someone you infinitely love and have a perfect relationship with? And then a serpent comes along and seduces your loved one into betraying you. Would you be angry? That's what happened. That's basically what happened. God built something beautiful and pure, and, a, and, and Satan, sin, infected that thing. Ask yourself, would you be angry? Most of you are like, yeah. And you're not even holy like he is. Imagine being perfectly holy and that thing happens. Now you know why it's an abomination to him. So you say, yeah, you'd be angry. I, I agree. And yet the perfect holy God of the universe, who, betray, who was betrayed and sinned against beyond human comprehension, is then further regularly misrepresented by contemporary Christianity. So that thing happened, and then Christianity just goes, well, maybe, you know, you don't really, you don't need to be that angry about it. He needs to get over it. You know, like there's some, this is disgusting, but you know there's some people that literally deny the Holocaust? It's unbelievable. You're like, wait a minute, what? Well, it's easier that way. Well, let's deny, let's, you know, oh, no, never, never really happened. Okay, okay, there was some stuff, but what? no. And that's just the Holocaust. No offense to the Jews, right? I mean, that's an abomination just on earth. Imagine if you're the holy God of the universe. And then, and then people start, people that supposedly represent you with like, you know, crosses on steeples and everything like that are saying, oh, he's not really that mad. He's got nothing really that mad. He's just pure love. You know, he's like, la, la, la. He's got nothing to be angry about. 
It's got not, there's no wrath. Up here in the board, it's part of this myth that exists in contemporary Christianity. By making God, quote, nicer, in other words, more palatable to human sensibilities, you end up making him weaker, which undermines the fear and respect that's due him and ultimately extinguishes the need for a savior. You see, it's like putting out the fire of the Spirit when he goes to convict you of sin. Well, I mean, I'm not that far from God. He's not that hateful towards me. You know. And so it diminishes the real need to reach out with a truly humble, repentant heart for salvation to the only one who can save you. And so making God nicer actually, and Satan's really smart, actually undermines the gospel. So to say that God doesn't hate is to misrepresent him altogether. And so we've noted this in multiple passages in the Word of God already. But here's the visual aid again, one last time. hope it makes sense. Uh, on the right, you have this fear of God. And all good things are sourced by God, like love, security, contentment, and peace. And since he's got the so-called market cornered, he's the source of all things good, whatever's not in the sphere of him, whatever's not holy with him or made holy with him is outside of his sphere. And the only thing left are the opposites, like hate, insecurity, malcontent, unrest. And you can fill in your own back and forths. Um, but that's a nice way to think about what the Spirit's been teaching. Here's the practical conclusion up here on the board regarding God's holiness. When you fully understand God's holiness, then you expect Him to hate the way He does. You expect it. You don't expect anything less. And you, don't, you certainly don't try to water it down or make nice or you know, make it politically correct, which is one of the things we love to do nowadays, because God forbid we offend anyone. Right? God forbid, and that goes to you too, God. You can't offend anyone, even though Jesus Christ, the God-man, was so offensive, they murdered him. They killed him. But yet, I, I, you know, I just wonder what society would do today uh, if Jesus came back, what most contemporary Christian churches would actually do and how they would respond to what I believe he would say. Um, I think he'd be doing a lot of table flipping over. Honestly. Honest, I really believe that a lot. I think a lot of the most popular so-called preachers out there, he would probably pummel them. He would probably make a point of destroying their churches because it's all about money. You understand? And he'd probably go in there and say, what are you doing? Why have you become millionaires? I never charged anybody a cent. What are you doing? Who are you representing right now? I just think he would go berserk. And he'd run a lot of people out of Dodge. Anyways, I mean, that's all in alignment with this hatred of sin, of, of, of giving him a bad name even. Um, anyways, when you fully understand God's holiness, then you expect him to hate the way he does. Now, this creates a bit of tension. I got uh, 
several emails, had several conversations with people wholly intent on just learning the Word of God, just want to know the truth. And like me, they said, this is hard to hear God's hatred. It's vitriol, right? I mean, it's, it's venomous almost. You're like, ooh, it's hard. But it's appropriate when you understand how holy he is. So it creates this tension with, uh, with us, and, but also it creates a certain tension with contemporary Christianity's interpretation regarding the likes of John 3.16. Go there, John 3.16. So there's a certain tension that builds up, right? Because today's contemporary Christianity likes to tell unbelievers that God loves them the way they are. That he looks at them and says, yeah, I love you. Where's the, where's the hatred in the Bible? Where's the hatred of sin? Where's the, uh, where's the offensiveness? People don't preach that because it's not politically correct. That's why. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, uh, and, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. All right, but what about this conclusion we just rightly gleaned from the Word of God? Up here on the board is God's holiness. When you fully understand God's holiness, then you expect him to hate the way he does. So now I go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I agree with that. Okay, I agree with that. I've seen, you know, Psalm 5, 5, Psalm 32. I, I get it. I've, I've seen it. Um, but then I read John 3, 16, and it says, but God so loved the world. I'm like, wait a minute. Now I've got two sort of things going on. If the world's filled with sinners, how can the Bible say that for God so loved the world? Well, the, the tension, the question is, well, which is it? Which is it? Does he hate the world or does he love it? You, my friends, need to think about this long and hard. I have been. You need to think about this long and hard. The leadership team had a two-hour discussion about this very verse yesterday out in the lawn over there. I said, all right, leaders, come on, let's go. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about John 3.16. What say you? How do you reconcile this in your soul? And I didn't preach. Is that fair, guys? No, I was not intent on preaching. I really was a co-learner, like fully intent on just what are, the, what are the leadership team around me? What are they thinking right now? Because I got certain things going on in my soul right now based on Holy Scripture, honest Holy Scripture, that something's not sitting right in my soul. Certainly not with the way contemporary Christianity goes about talking about John 3.16. I think they're several degrees removed from the truth. But I still feel like I have more work to do on it. And you might be saying, seriously? You've been behind a pulpit for like 11 years now and you're talking about John 3.16 and you're admitting publicly that you're still thinking about John 3.16 and you're still not 100% settled on it? Yeah. You know what they call that? Humility. I don't know everything. 
Honestly, I've studied the Bible upside down, sideways. I've read commentaries, you know, original language, blah, blah, blah. I don't know everything. It would be nice if I did, but I don't. So that's why I always tell you, be like a Berean. Learn for yourself. Have your own convictions. I don't want you to have my convictions. I want you to have your convictions. My job is to lead you. Lead you to the truth. And hopefully I don't spill anything, right? Because I'm the waiter. <laughs> right? God fills up the soup bowl. I'm like, don't look at it. Remember that blog? Don't stare at it. The cup of coffee. You can't. You just walk like this. My biggest job is not to screw it. I can't make it better. I just can screw it up. So just remember that. I'm not arrogant like that. And I don't. I do have to preach, and I will preach what I believe, because that's my job. But in the context of certain settings, like yesterday, I really don't. I just want to learn. I want to know the truth. So again, what is it? Does he hate the world, or does he love it? So you have to think about that. Um, I can tell you this. I haven't been given the license from the Spirit yet to lead you any further than that right now. When he gives me license, trust me, I will teach it with fervency. Suffice to say, for our purposes in our messages as of late, you just need to accept that God hates sin, and those still in them, a.k.a. unbelievers, with a holy hatred, not that emotional, I want to beat you up thing. This very truth is what makes the gospel such a wonderful proposition. To know that about the holy God of the universe. Up here on the board, the gospel. In God, in his infinite grace, reaches out across the chasm to those whom he hates and says, I will save you, deliver you from the throes of spiritual death, if you accept my offer, my son. I'll save you. That's the offer. That's always been the offer on the table. What we learn from the Bible is that while God's hatred is righteous and justified, so is his love. So is his love. Our job then, by faith through grace, is to accept both truths in our souls. It doesn't matter that you maybe can't reconcile them perfectly just yet, but you have to accept the truth. That's the starting point. And then you work towards reconciliation. All I can tell you is, if there's any confusion, remember, God's not a God of confusion, so there's no confusion in reality. It's just as we learn, we have to work some of this confusion out. But if there's confusion, really, it typically comes down to two possibilities. Either we're missing something, which happens, right? I mean, who can say they've got the whole Bible memorized? I don't, right? And so we just say, in that case, if we're missing something, then... We just have to be more diligent. We just keep going at it. Right? You just kind of go at it like a pit bull. You just, just go at it. And even if, you know, just gnawing the bone, right? Maybe those are bad examples. Or God's simply chosen not to disclose it to us. And we just have to accept it by faith alone. That happens an awful lot. Right? That happens an awful lot. Some people think their pets are going to be in heaven with them. Some people say, no way. Ask me. I say, I don't know. It'd be kind of cool if some of my pets were there. Maybe not some others. <laughs> the ones that, you know, chewed everything up and pooped on the floor. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So you talk, oh, my God. Damn you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying, right? 
Angels belly buttons? Come on. Right? I mean, come on. What are we doing here? You know, whatever. It doesn't, you know, if God didn't disclose it, then you have to say, okay, he didn't disclose it. So I'm not going to manufacture some doctrine to, to, you know, appease my desire to have all knowledge. That's just pure arrogance. And so whenever you're confused, just make sure you accept the, the, the basic premises as truth and then let faith bridge the gap. Okay? And if at some point he fills in that gap with a, you know, a revelation that happens as you grow up in the faith, then so be it. So there's more brick and mortar between the two, you know, whatever, however you'd like to know. But in the absence of that, don't let confusion unsettle you. Because Satan can use that, and he's used it in the past. Even in this congregation, people get kind of upset about a certain, this doctrine against that one, they don't understand, and then I'll say something profound, right? Um, and they don't like it, so they leave. Because they're, they're rattled, and, and, and because they're rattled and they, they lack the faith, they leave. Don't do that either. Don't, don't leave the truth or abandon you know, the truth uh, because you're confused for a, for a time. Just have some faith. Could be that he hasn't disclosed it to anyone and you're just struggling with a certain something. Anyways, so those are the really only two options we ever have when our finite human minds get a little tangled regarding the Word of God. It's very, think about it, it's very unnatural for humans to think the way God does, which is why we have to be trained. Um, that's what the Word of God says. Isaiah 55, 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. So it's expected. We, we have to be, you know, like the Bible says, let your minds be transformed. Trans, go from here to there. Right? Let our thinking be transferred, transformed from here to there. Um, that's sanctification. And that's why we don't know everything up front. We have to learn. Again, it's very unnatural for humans to think the way God does. And this is where it gets really interesting. Um, Jesus teaches us, if we're paying attention, if you're diligent, Jesus teaches us what it's like to think like God. And it's beautiful. Go to Luke 6.32. Luke 6, verse 32. <clears throat> Jesus teaches us what it's like to think like God. Because we don't naturally think like him. We just don't. We think, oh, that seems a little bit rough. You know, that's tough. You're being really tough on him. You know. That's how we think in, you know, human, we have these like limits and we like to limit God and hatred and the way we're, most of us were raised with PC, hatred. Don't say hate. You don't hate anybody. You know, it's just sort of like, oh, all right, I don't hate anybody. You know, but, but God does. Just saying. How do you think like God? Jesus in uh, Luke 6.32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, 
and you will be sons of the Most High. In other words, like, you know, just like him. We are created in his image, after all. We're sanctified to be more and more like him. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So what is Jesus teaching us here? He's teaching us God's heart. You see? He said, what good is that? So, you, so you, you know, you, 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 you're good to people you like, you like, basically? What good is that? What about being good to someone you don't like, who just punched you in the face? How about that? How about being kind or gracious to that person or merciful to that person? Some of you are like, no way. Well, that's how far you are from God. That's proof of it right there on the board. That's the gospel. God in his infinite grace reaches out across a chasm to those whom he hates and says, I will save you, deliver you from the throes of spiritual death if you accept my offer, which is my son. Paul wrote about God's heart as well. Go to Romans 5, verse 6. Romans 5, verse 6. So that's what this, these messages have been about lately. God doesn't want you just to run away with your tail between your legs because he's a certain hatred towards sin. He wants you to understand his position in this as, a, as the Holy One of the universe. He wants you to sort of anchor yourself. That's why, we, if you recall, before these, this theme in our messages, we talked about confession. Say the same thing as God. He trained us that way. Now he's saying, well, this is what I say. Do you want to say the same thing as I'm saying right now about love, hate, and grace? Because that's what this is all about. You see? That's how beautiful confession is. Uh, Romans 5, 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. I'm thinking about all the military people out there. Verse 8, but God shows his love for, and for is ice, E-I-S in the Greek. It means in the presence of, in view of. Okay? God shows his love for ice in the Greek, which to, if you expand the translation means in the presence of or in view of. Okay? God shows his love in the presence of or in view of us. In other words, he's showing us his love. It doesn't mean that he loves us as sinners, it means he's showing us his love. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Up here on the board. The gospel again, God hates evildoers, but Jesus reveals God's heart towards those he hates. He is merciful and gracious. The cross of Jesus Christ reveals God's hatred, juxtaposed, which just fancy word means right next to each other, with his love. Right? We have to reconcile these things. We saw in plenty what the Bible has to say about the hatred of God and the love of God. And we have to have these things have to coexist because they're there. So the cross of Jesus Christ reveals God's hatred juxtaposed with his love. His love, you know, some like to say in a quippy way, love hung on a cross, right? Uh, and God's wrath poured down on him. See, there's that collision. Um, that is the magnificence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is 
or he reveals his love to us through his son. And that is different than saying he's revealing his love for unredeemed sinners. Up here on the board, God's love doesn't exist because we are worthy of it. Is that fair? His love doesn't exist because we are worthy. In other words, he wasn't just like, ho hum, <laughs> and then, ooh, I created creatures, someone to love. Now my love magically exists. That's not how it goes. God is love. Before we were even created, guess what? He was loved then too. So having creatures being created doesn't mean that that's when love was, I'll use a nerd term, instantiated, when it was created, when it first came to be. He is love. That means he was always love. God's love doesn't exist because we are worthy of it. And just as a side note, that should help, not in every degree, but that should help clear up some of the confusion you might have with John 3.16. Although, as I mentioned earlier, there's much more to ponder on that one verse as we all concluded at yesterday's leadership meeting. There's much more. Um, but here's a conclusion we reached last Sunday up here on the board. Unlocking grace in the gospel, God is gracious because he is love. His graciousness has nothing to do with anyone else nor anyone who receives the benefits of it. This grace proves his own love to us, Romans 5.8, a la John 3.16. He loves because of who he is. It emanates not because of who we are. In other words, it's not attracted to us as sinners. It's not attracted to us as sinners. He's not attracted to us as sinners. God abhors those still in their sins, and yet his love is so incredible that he found a way to reconcile those he hates with himself. That's the very premise of grace. Go to Ephesians 2.8. Ephesians 2.8. That's the very premise of grace, and that's why grace is so magnificent. It's, it's, it's hard to... Well, we can't really, can we? With finite minds, can we actually put our arms around God's grace? Not really. It's too big, right? Because that chasm is infinite and we only have finite minds. So the, 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 thing, the, the thing that grace conquers, that huge chasm, we can't, put, we can't measure. So we can only take it as far as our human brains can conceptualize it, and that's it. Which is still apparently good enough. For us to be wowed. Amen? Right. That's grace, though. Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In other words, God doesn't want to say, Hey, did you see me in the middle? I, I had this little ladder out, and I was helping you carry, you know, I was helping to cross the chasm. Or I, I stepped out a couple of steps to you. Did you see me? That, no. No works so that no one will boast. Not even a half of a millimeter did you step towards him. He had to come all the way across, and that's what we call grace. So that completes our review of love, hate, and grace. Uh, let's get back to our primary course of study. Go to Proverbs 17.1. Yeah, we've got plenty of time. Proverbs 17.1. All of it is, of course, connected. It's not like any of that was disconnected from this message. I mean, this is the launching pad for those. 
Proverbs 17, verse 1. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. A servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. The crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. There's an assayer verse right there, right? The Lord tests heart. You see the metal there. So, uh, Verse 4, an evildoer listens to wicked lips, and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. And so it was that last verse that launched us into a few different sidebars, the last one being the two parts on love, hate, and grace. Now, coming full circle, the Spirit, excuse me, encouraged a, uh, us regarding our own treatment of sin in our lives, even as believers, uh, in light of the punishment in view in verse 5. Up here on the board, this is a, a principle from a few messages back before we departed. There's always a positive result of confessing to God. Always a po- whether it's good, bad, or ugly. Right? Whether you're saying, well, I thought I was 24K, but I'm really 14. Or in my case, I'm really like two and a half. Right? Whoa, 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 easy now. Right? That's always good. No matter what the result is. But the flip side is confession can also be about good things. Lord, I had a good heart. I did that thing. I wanted to do that thing to bring glory to you. And he said, absolutely, love it. It's, confession is not always just sin. Confession is just saying the same thing. So if in your heart you, in prayer, say, God, I did that with right motivation, right? He'll say, yeah, you did. And that's great. That's exactly what I want. Right? There's always a positive result to confessing God, good or bad, though. And as I've taught you many times in the past, Confession is actually for you, um, because God already knows. So you admit your sins in the presence of God. And as, I learned, oh, as we learned last time, um, your sanctification, which is really becoming more holy, depends on your confession. Your willingness to confess, to say the same things as God. Your sanctification depends on it. As we learned with David, if you refuse to confess, say, a sin, punishment ensues. Uh, In this sense, punishment then is self-inflicted up here in the board. Self-induced misery. To live in sin is a choice. To refuse to confess that sin is to remain in it under the judgment and punishment that it incurs. Punishment for believers may be quantified minimally. It's not the only way. God can. The Bible says, I mean... I know this is another one, not a popular thing to say from, from the pulpit, but it's true. The Bible says that if you're living in sin, you can physically be affected. That he will possibly, I don't know when it happens and when it doesn't, physically harm you. Like some people might be sick for years and years and years. Why? They're living in sin. Do you remember when Jesus healed a certain someone and said, go sin no more? Which implied that, guess what? The reason he was maimed the way he was, the way he was debilitated the way he was, was because of that sin. And so we can't shy away from the truth, folks, right? I'm not saying God does that every time where he will affect you physically, but he can. I mean, the ultimate is what? The sin unto death. How about that for physical? 
gone. I'm not going to just hurt you. I'm going to take you out. Oh, you'll do that? Yeah. Yeah, I'll do that. I'd prefer to punish you, get you back on track so you can bring more glory to me, but I guess, you know, punishment for believers may minimally be quantified as a loss of peace, though. We know that he gave us a good conscience that can discern between right and wrong. And God the Holy Spirit will use that with the substance of the Word of God right there as the, the credibility of the conviction itself, right? He'll use that to uh, convict us to the point where we're at a loss of peace. Where we, we living, we know it's wrong, we're still persisting in it, the Word of God says it's wrong. God the Holy Spirit's using the Word of God, bringing to remembrance, hey, that's wrong, and you're like, yep, and you persist. That's not going to go over very well in your soul. That's the point. That's the point. Jeremiah said it this way up here on the board, Lamentations 3.17, My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. Again, God's just looking for a confession up here on the board. So we established the value of confession a few weeks back now. A stubborn person who refuses good counsel is only harming themselves. A stubborn person who hears a message like this one uh, and doesn't do anything with it is an arrogant one. Why? Up here on the board. Because arrogance is unteachable. Arrogance is unteachable. That's the whole point. Hey, God might be saying this about your life right now. La, 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 la. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to learn that. That would require me to, I don't know, be humble. Maybe make some changes in my life. Nonetheless, sin is the issue. It has always been, and an arrogant person rejects this notion. They say, it's not that bad. Have you heard anybody say that? That's one of my favorites. It's not that bad. That is like the ultimate death knell, right? It's like, boom. It's not that bad. What? what did the, what's the Bible say about how many sins does it take to justify sending you to the lake of fire? One. The Bible says if you broke one part of the law, you broke the whole law. If you're unholy here, then you're unholy completely. So there's no such thing as, well, eh, it's not that bad. Right? When you know better, then you know better. So stop. Stop playing this game. It's not that bad. I'm so good elsewhere. I do all this. I go to church. I do this and I do that. And Oh, look at God. Look at this. Wee! Like, look at this, right? Can't you just have me have my little pet? The one I let out of the closet every so often? Right? Woo, it's Friday night. It's time to let it out. Woo! Raise the roof, right? And then, you know, Friday, early Saturday morning, you close it after the walk of shame, right? Praying to the porcelain king or whatever the heck it is you do. Hopefully some, most of you are way too old for that crap at this point. I know I am, right? But you have these little moments where you think it's like, it's my birthday. I'm going to do whatever I want. I don't like that Monica's laughing so loud. That's disturbing, right? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, what, what part of that? You're laughing, but... Think about it from God's perspective. It's gross. Think about Jesus Christ. You're betrothed to him. He's your husband. And you're literally planning 
on cheating on him, on adulterating. What do you think he's saying when, you, when you're laughing nonetheless at it, right? Think about it. What do you think he's saying? He's your husband. And he sees what you're doing. It's almost like saying, you know, like you have those little calendars on your refrigerator, right? Oh, Friday night, going to cheat on you. And your husband comes on and goes, is that, really, is that really right there? I got planned. I'm going out. It's Friday night. Just got paid. Right? Oh, is it real? Did you really just write that? Like, for me to see? Pretty much, yeah. What are you going to do about it? You just love me so much, you're not going to do anything. Get in the back seat, buddy. No matter if I can't because I'm, oh, wait a minute, you indwell me? So I take you with me wherever I go? Whenever I adulterate on you? You're with me? Ooh, how gross is this getting? Do you understand why you can't say, oh, it's just, you know, it's not that bad. That's an arrogant person rejecting sin. In this sin, they refuse to confess what is right in the eyes of God, their creator. So I gave you this little string of pearls. I'll read it again. This was a couple weeks ago. Confession is the remedy. Confession is what leads to repentance. Repentance leads to forgiveness. Forgiveness leads to reconciliation. Reconciliation leads to peace. Confession kickstarts the whole thing. Right? Confession, repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation, peace. As we noted at the start of this message, sin is the issue. Sin is the reason we're punished even. Confession is our reprieve. All right, this takes us all the way back to our primary course of study again. Look at, are you still in Proverbs 17? All right, look at verse 5. So this is really finishing that up. Ooh, we got some time. Yep, yep, we can press on. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Verse 6. Hey, huh? Some of you are like, thank God, that punishment stuff was brutal. Look at this, something, something more jolly. Grandchildren are the crown of the age, and the glory of children is their fathers. Huh. What an interesting verse. Solomon wrote this from a position of wisdom, remember. Right? Solomon was the wisest man of his time. And look what he just wrote. What does he write? Let me go back there. Grandchildren are the crown of the age, and the glory of children is their fathers. So Solomon wrote this from a position of wisdom, and as he did, he was writing while looking back on a life where this wisdom wasn't just academic to him. Do you understand? It wasn't just academic. It was practical. It was real for him. He was writing like a father would write, right? What we see here is a perspective on generational blessings. So we kind of, it's a lofty statement, right? That there's a, such a thing as a generational blessing. Uh, and if you understand the context of the culture that um, was prevalent at that time with Israel. Israel is very family-based, right? Big on family, big on you know, prosperity always had an element of, you know, kids and children and, and, and families and, you know, posterity, all that kind of stuff. That was like a lot of what Israel's blessings were based on, right? If you were blessed, you had a lot of kids. That was the way it was. That's why if you read like, um, uh, who, let's see, uh, 
Sarah, uh, Elizabeth, I think, had, you know, was like, geez, maybe it's just not going to happen type thing. Um, and then God blessed them, and they were elated. You might take it even further, and, you know, someone who was during that time, uh, if you didn't have kids, God might have had it out for you. And that's not true. It's not necessarily right. But you understand the culture. So understanding the context here, right? There's an idea of generational blessings, right? And since children are a blessing from God, then you cannot discount the fact that he's blessing certain people out or certain families out uh, across generations. So again, the very culture of Israel was family-based. Posterity was a blessing to the Jews, uh, maybe even more than it is by today's standards. Maybe. I don't know. Everybody seems to be uh, on their smartphones and their kids don't even exist. That's, one, that's why one of the reasons I don't like to go to fast food restaurants anymore. I don't know what the deal is, but there's, it's like obligatory. There's always some lady sitting there with some poor kid who just wants the mother's attention, and she's on her smartphone. I'm like, will you just, for my sake, can you just pay attention to your kid for a little while? Here, here have another chicken nugget. <laughs> Here, what's in your Happy Meal? Here, here's a toy. Want a different toy? Go get another one. I got stuff to do. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. Do you know what I'm saying? What are you doing with your lips, first of all, you moron? You look like an idiot. Right? And I'm like, your kids, you're with your kid. Do you understand? What, What happened here? Did you lose the blessing? Facebook's your blessing now? You got this beautiful child in front of you yearning for your attention, for your love, and you're making fish lips in public? What the hell's wrong with you? And you're 40 or 30 or whatever. What's wrong with you, man? What are you doing? Pay attention to your kid. Okay, that's my rent. I'm just saying, family, right? Anyways. In our striving after the wind, I think we've lost sight of the value of family. Uh, I think it's one of the things I love about the Fredericks family. I can't look over there. Not because Chris isn't just strikingly handsome. Because I'll get emotional. But it's one of the things I love about the... Sorry to call you out, Chris, but not really that sorry. It's one of the things I love about the Fredericks, and there's a lot of them. <laughs> if you watch them closely, especially Chris and Lydia, no offense, kids, you realize they are blessed with all those kids, even though they might drive them bananas at times. <laughs> Is this true? Yeah, all right, good, all right. Just making an assumption, having my own, like all kids do. They may not be living in a mansion on a hill somewhere, but you know what? Their children are a blessing far beyond measurement. And you know what? This is something the Bible teaches us. Go to uh, Psalm 127, verse 3. Psalm 127, verse 3. Psalm 127, verse 3. What does the Bible say about kids? Behold, children are a heritage 
from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Do you understand the connection there between uh, family and blessings? Right? doesn't mean if you don't have a family, you're not blessed. But you cannot discount the fact what the Bible says. The Bible says if you have a family, you've been blessed by God. In other words, children are a blessing. And that's how we should think about children. <clears throat> children are the heritage from the Lord. And think about it this way as well. We are, after all, His children. And being made in His image, we are granted the privilege of having our own children to maybe, I don't know, catch a glimpse of God's love for his children? Maybe. Maybe that's the illustration for us. Maybe that's the great blessing as a parent, is that you get to have a glimpse of what God loves about his own children. I mean, we are cast in his image, are we not? And as we're sanctified, we understand him more and more as what? Abba, Father, Daddy. Right? So we understand the love in a small way through this little construct called family. And so that's a blessing. We have to say, yeah, then great. Children are, are a great blessing according to the word of God, especially for those who fear the Lord. Just look at the very next verse. Look at 128 verse 1, and then I'll close. <clears throat> Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you keep or see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. You see the blessing? May you see your children's children. Who's that? That's a grandparent. And that's what we just noted in Proverbs 17, 6, right? May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of studying your word. It is the truth, and the truth is meant to set us free, Father. Thank you for your kindness, your love, your mercy, your grace. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to our homes. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.